intersectionality in the diaspora. Can y'all believe that it's August already and that the year is halfway through? Time has such an interesting way of moving and like, I often find myself looking back wondering like, how the hell did I get here so fast? So much has happened since our last chat together back in April. Big heartfelt thank you for your patience yet again. Y'all, life is hard and we are all doing our best know we're still in the midst of the COVID pandemic and we're also carrying the weight of what's called the monkeypox virus which by the way is not a gay disease contrary to what you may be hearing um, please educate yourselves on the realities of this virus and know that anyone is at risk please stop the stigma and keep your queer phobia on check just one way that we can show love to our community and to each other. I did a poll a couple months back asking y'all what you wanted to dive into next. Lots of folks asked for something completely different, and I think I can actually deliver that today. Let's see, your girl here has been navigating life through the eyes of an artist. A monumental verse for me. <laughs> and as some of you may know, of the last year, I've dedicated myself to healing my trauma, building community, and nurturing my craft. Fast forward, and as of April of 2022, I'm a published author, which I still can't believe, and I'm often downplaying so low that I forget it's true. I'm grateful to have a growing community of black and brown healers and abolitionists that fuel my heart and soul. Somehow in the hustle and bustle of building, writing, marketing, and putting myself out there, someone noticed me doing my thing. Which brings me to today's episode. (laughs) So y'all, I wrote a book. It's a poetry collection that speaks to the traumas and triumphs of living in diaspora, healing from trauma, and finding your authentic self. A lot like what we talk about in this show, Um, but it's a little bit deeper, more nuanced, and much more clearly from my personal perspective and lived experience. And (laughs) it really is such an honor. I I get overwhelmed when I think about it, but (sighs) anyhow, the whisper, the storm, and the light in between is my way of articulating the silent pain and yelling it out to the world for all to hear. For those of us out there that feel alone, this Kaidipa holds gentle reminders that we are together in the struggle and fight, that together we rise and heal to feel our divine right. Now, for something completely different, I present to you an interview between me, Clara, and Patty Wells from the South Seattle Emerald. Founded as a platform that authentically depicts the dynamic voices, culture, arts, ideas, and businesses that fall within South Seattle's borders, the Emerald is news as it was originally intended to be. Not as business, not as a forum for propaganda, but as a service to the community it chronicles. That's my kind of, that's my kind of publication, y'all. 
much love and gratitude to the South Seattle Emerald for giving me the space and platform to speak part of my journey, and to Patty Wells for taking me on an even deeper journey of understanding with questions I'm still percolating on weeks later. So without much further ado, please enjoy something completely different. the plan for the article is a, a book review, um, but especially with a debut collection, um, I like to speak to the author to include some background information as well. Um, so I'm gonna ask a few uh, background questions and then a, a couple of questions about different poems. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely beefy collection and I haven't gotten like, like totally into every single one yet, but there's just some really beautiful things here. And so um, I really, really, really appreciate you giving me the chance to um, review it. Um, oh, thank you. So first, um, a little bit of background on you, um, where you come from, uh, where you have lived, what brought you to Seattle, um, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I have some you know questions to throw in here and there, but I'll let you start with just a little um, background info. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm born and raised in South Central LA. I went to preschool there, elementary school there, middle school, and then in high school I ended up going to school in East LA, which was a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of other adventures in and of themselves. Um, and then. I had to actually drop out of high school when I turned 16. So my life became a little chaotic at that point. And, you know, partly due to the chaos, um, when I turned 18, I was like, peace, I'm out. And so I moved to the East Bay and I lived in Oakland for two years. Um, and, you know, I have a cousin out there and he was the only family that I had. And, you know, when things got crazy, I, or I'm sorry, things got chaotic and um, I ended up coming back down to LA, had to, you know, pick up where I left off basically, which was being a care provider for my mom. Um, when I dropped out at 16, it was to take care of her. And so I didn't really have like, like I didn't really get to enjoy that part of high school life where you can just like be a teenager and go do like dope ass shit or dumb ass shit with your friends you know um I had very very little of that um and so you know when I came back home after living in Oakland it was just really it was just, it was a lot to have to go back to that and at that point my mom wasn't as healthy as she was when I left and um anyway fast forward I ended up moving to Houston and so I was there for 10 years and hands down, like some of the best experiences and worst experiences of my life. Um, it was the first time that I actually got to live on my own. Like I had no family out there. I literally started from scratch, um, put my way through culinary school, got to work with like a lot of amazing chefs from the city, um, like some pretty high profile chefs too. So like, you know, when you're in the industry and like you can, you have that connection, like your community grows. So I always felt like I belonged when I lived in Houston. Um, it was very, it very much felt like home. It very much felt like what I had back in LA. Um, and then when I moved to Seattle, which was about five years ago, 
Um, and the reason for that, mind you, was that I lived in Houston for 10 years. I had this incredible community of like, you know, friends and colleagues and just like, uh, just amazing people. And I lived in the neighborhood I wanted to live in. I was like, you know, had a great job that I had been doing for the 10 years that I was there. And um, it just felt too easy. I was like, there's got to be more like this can't just be it, you know, um, and I could do this for the rest of my life. But like, what am I, you know, what's out there that I'm saying no to that I'm not even giving myself a chance to experience, you know, and at that point, I was living and working at a bed and breakfast and uh, when I made that decision or at least when I started making that decision and one of the guests that was staying with me she was a survivor of domestic violence she was actually like in the process of leaving her her husband and she told me that you know she literally just like spun a globe and it landed in Houston and I'm like oh that's really interesting like anywhere in the world and you ended up here okay <laughs> and she was from Seattle and I was like oh, I've never been to Seattle like you know I've heard like really beautiful things about it and you know she was like oh you would love Seattle and it's such a great city and da 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 da, da. and like you would just like fit in so great there and da da da, da. I was like okay cool um and so you know fast forward I, I came and I I came to visit during the summer. I was like, oh yeah, this is awesome. This is so beautiful. I could totally see myself living here, you know? And I, I made a couple of those summertime trips and I'm like, yeah, fuck it, let's do it, you know? Um, but um, it wasn't actually like the main thing that really did it for me um, was like during the second, nah, during the last trip, I think, during the last visit to Seattle, because my partner, is living here. He moved here a year before I did. And like, when we were like, when I was thinking about moving to Seattle, he was apparently thinking about it too, but like we weren't together at the time. Like we were not talking at the time. And so it just like, through strange circumstances, it all just worked out that way. He came a year before I did. Um, all that to say that, um, yeah. Uh, oh, I totally forgot why I was saying all that. Excuse me. <laughs> My no. ADHD brain is like, ah! <laughs> that's great. Um, sometimes people are like, oh, if I ramble, I'm like, actually rambling is helpful because sometimes it'll like, <laughs> you know, it'll give me questions that I might not have thought of. Um, so I, I want to move next to um, this being your uh, first full length collection, like your debut um, collection. And um, a question that I have um, has to do with the um, the title. So uh, the title, um, "Whisper the or sorry, the Whisper the Storm and the Light in Between." Um, obviously, you're able to very easily see in the collection the way the poems are um, situated to towards those three different kind of voices or identities. Um, I'm curious outside of your writing, when do you feel like each in your life? So when do you feel like the whisper? When do you feel like the storm? And when do you feel like the light in between? Hmm. Mm. That's a really beautiful question. Thank you for asking me that and for framing it that way. 
um I feel like right now is definitely the light like me like even though like my body right now is going through like I like I've been flaring for the last three days I've been I just have so much pain and you know but the fact that the sun is shining right now and I can literally just go feel it you know that brings me to this place of you know literally the light right now so like overjoyed and able to connect and engage and be present and just you know bring forward all of my you know full lively joyous self um and that offers me opportunity to really open up and to step into that authenticity that I I don't often feel safe enough to do um so like those moments unlike the whisper right the moments where I feel small where I have to hold back um either because I don't feel like I will be heard or I will feel like, you know, I've been saying the same thing over and over again. So like, what's the point, you know? And I think especially those moments where the power dynamics are skewed against me, right? And in predominantly white institutions, which is a prevalent theme in my, in my collection as well. Um, those are really some of those, um, especially like public moments of silence, of whispering, of having to hold back. And then, you know, when I take it back a layer and I think about like when I'm home, even as a child or even now where I notice that there's tension around me or some angers or something and I have to hold back. I have to make myself small. Um, and, you know, and I, and that's just part of being a survivor. That's part of embodying, you know, trauma and having to work through it you know like my inter my immediate response is to make myself small um and so you know through the storm you know those moments where i've been able to you know have agency in what i feel and having the safety and the security um, not just in myself, but in my surroundings to speak up and to be adamant about what I feel is to be true. Um, and that could be even like within my own emotions. If I'm in a space and I am feeling activated because of something that somebody said, you know, I will feel powerful enough, you know, and grounded in my own truth to actually say, hey, you know what, that's fucked up, bro, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so it's just literally you know, just the, the constant ebb and flow of emotions that I feel on a day-to-day -day can be wrapped up into like those three elements rather, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your Afro, I'm sorry, Afro-Salvadorian um, um, background and the erasure of that. Um, so um, a lot of the collection and reading it for me deals with um, your identities. Um, you know, fat, black, queer, Afro-Salvadorian, and erasure that has gone along with that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Um, I can flip to a specific poem, but the, you know, um, <laughs> um, I'll get to some of the, the poems and lines in them that I have questions about. Um, but I think it was somewhere in the forward. Let me look um, here. Sorry, just a second. I have to. I have, I have, um, um, page marked or earmarked pages. Um, so there's this um, passage in the um, message from the author where it says, no one in my family was made aware of these facts despite my father being born black, born and raised in, is it 
Sonsonate. Sonsonate. And donning the ubiquitous name for many melanated bichos y hombres negro. So your father had this identity, but didn't have the history to go along with it. And then you inherited that along with like not having that, that history. Is that correct? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you named it very succinctly um, because there is that culture. There is a very obvious, you know, element of blackness in El Salvador, right? And yet Salvadorians are just so quick to remove themselves from that reality. Um, and so in my family, you know, he was, you know, sorry, this is really, hard. it's really hard for me to talk about this yeah, part of my, myself. So, cause I usually don't, so I don't know how to talk about it, but I'll do what I'll do my best. Um, so like as literally the only black person in my family, right? And, you know, he donned that nickname. That's, you know, how what everybody called him. And so I was called Negrita because I was his daughter. Um, and so like I, as a child, like I, it is what it is. They're just names. They're not, you know. Um, and then after he left that, you know, it's one of those things that never really, we never talked about. I mean, I know why he left. My mother was very um, aggressive about him not being present and keeping him away from me because of her reasons. Um, and so with that left my my connection to that part of myself. Um, and so I'm growing up and starting to notice some of that anti-Blackness, some of that like you know, inherent racism within the family that nobody wants to call racism, right? I'm like, oh, well, you know, make sure you don't spend too much time outside in the sun or you're going to get darker. Oh, you're, are you dating a black guy? Oh, no. All of that shit, right? That for some reason doesn't apply to me, even though I'm negrita, even though that's my father, negro es mi, mi tata, like, really? You know? <laughs> um but nobody says it. Nobody goes out and says anything, any of those things. But they imply it, you know? It's, it's there. It's all very coded and not so coded. Um, anyway, and so, like, that part of myself, I never even, I never, I was never curious about. And so my own internalized anti-Blackness, right, stemming from that absence and from that, you know, my own personal erasure, basically, um, and it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't until I moved to Seattle and I started, you know, my, my decolonization process, I guess you can call it, you know, and I started doing the research and I started, you know, asking more questions about where we come from and who we are and who am I and, you know, I, I was um, doing a podcast with a friend of mine, um, podcast is called everything culture they're amazing you should listen to them um and so you know I was having a conversation with them and then like fast forward you know I'm talking to the host his name's Brandon he's a great friend of mine good friend of mine um I wish we were great friends COVID makes it hard to be great friends with anybody right now <laughs> um but you know he he made a comment how like he and his co-host were talking about like 
you know, she's got some black in her, like, we know, I can, I can see it, da, 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 da. I was like, well, you know, it's funny that you say that, because, like, my father is black, like, he's a black Salvadorian, but, like, when we talked about it the first time, I didn't phrase it that way, I had, like, I hesitated, I was like, oh, well, you know, you know, he he's a black Salvadorian and and you know but I I'm not so you know there's just a lot of hesitation and confusion because I don't know I didn't feel comfortable I didn't feel like oh I, I don't know but like that conversation with him and that moment of like oh shit <laughs> he is a black Salvador he is a black man what the fuck <laughs> you know like why have we been like treating it so differently you know like whatever anyway so that was kind of like the oh and that's when I started like asking myself the uncomfortable questions and trying to like really, you know, dig into my own internalized anti-blackness and the fear that I had, you know? And like, how could I not be afraid? It's like, I've heard and I saw how they would talk about him, you know, like, mm. and, living in a world where like that is anti-black and racist you know and like if I can go my whole life trying to keep myself safe as best as I can you know like whatever I don't know and in doing so and like having the privilege of being light-skinned having the privilege of being you know racially ambiguous you know like that's kept me safe but it's also come at such a high cost you know, it came at the cost of being my most authentic self. It came at the cost of, you know, building a better relationship to myself, you know? Um, and like, shit, never mind, like the toxicity that comes with that kind of mindset, right? Like, oh, and so, you know, just being able to unpack all of that and like sit with that discomfort and sit with like the weight of the truth and also be able to finally breathe and release like you know whatever it was that was holding me back keeping me quiet making me small and not letting me like really stand in that truth you know Thank you so much for being being very vulnerable there. Um, it made me think of um, this allowing ourselves to own our identities, you know, and all of the things that are limiting us from doing that. So I want to ask a question about a specific poem, um, Act of Contrition. Um, there's a line in this poem where it ends, where it says, but I wonder when it will finally be mine which really makes me feel this um, lack of connection to ownership of body, of self, of the skin and the, and the shape and who, who we inhabit. Can you talk about that um, and in that aspect of your identity and in this poem? I'll try to. <laughs> yeah, really I, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know so <laughs> you can you, you you can you know talk yeah. about it as little or as much as you want um yeah I just I I feel like there's um you know the 
the collection does such a good job of addressing a lot of these things. And there's so many times when we don't have space to address these things. So I definitely want to, even though they're very heavy and deep things, I want to, um, yeah. you know, talk about them if you're able to. Yeah, I hear you for sure. And yeah, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm just like, oh, where do I start? <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, excuse me. <clears throat> if you want, you um, can talk about that specific poem, like writing that poem. Yeah, I, so talking about my body as a whole is really difficult, just like, and even still, I, I know that I do this. I dissociate from my body really quickly. I may not you know, it, it'll happen seamlessly. And, you know, sometimes I don't notice, sometimes I do. And, you know, as a child, my body has always been, you know, it's always been a part of public discussion and discourse for some reason, like within my own family, at home, within the classroom, like, I mean, everywhere I've gone, you know, and like, you know, a lot comes with, you know, especially being a, you know, a woman or femme presenting person, like you are <laughs> bound to get all sorts of unwanted attention and unwanted criticism. And so for me, my body has never felt like it was mine. I've always had to, you know, change it for the sake of everybody around me for their own comfort or for my own safety because I didn't want them to continue to hurt me because of what my body looks like um and also like I've put it through so much you know in trying to you know appease everybody around me and all that's done is brought forth an onslaught of health problems that I deal with today you know um and so there's also this layer of, um, right, there's this idea of like, okay, everybody around me is going to exploit me, you know, whether it's for babysitting my niece or taking care of my mom at the rifle age of 16, or, you know, like all of these things, or just, you know, working in a capitalist society as a person of color, like who has to deal with all that shit too. Um, and then you take it up a notch and there's like all of these fucking beauty standards. And man, in the 90s, the uh, just like there was no space for brown bodies in the 90s. And so everything that I saw growing up was tall, skinny, white women. And so I developed an eating disorder at a very young age. Um, and I remember like having even, I had a spiral notebook where I would like track everything I would eat and I would like talk about, you know, my body in such a terrible way and how I would feel disgusting for eating this or that or blah, blah, blah. And I would have like, I would cut out pictures of like Abercrombie models and like, you know, oh, it's awful. Oh, my God. Um, you know, and so like, having to grow up immersed in a culture that is continuously telling me that I am wrong 
because of the way I look, because of how much I weigh, because of how dark I am, because of whatever, you know, because I have a fucking vagina who fucking like, oh, it's exhausting. It's like, when can I enjoy my, my own body, you know? And, and that's like on a whole other level, that's like, like that's really fucked with me in on a very intimate level. Like this, I've been reading Pleasure Activism and um, another book along with it called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, who is a sex educator and really just trying to peel back the, the sexual trauma that I've, you know, endured. And man, just like thinking how much patriarchy and how much gendered expectations of me and women and people like me and how that has really turned me into somebody afraid of their own body and I shouldn't be but the world has made me that way and so now it's up to me to unlearn all of that shit you know and again through like Adrian Marie Taylor, I'm sorry, Adrian Marie Brown and Sonia Marie Taylor, like, oh my God, they're bringing me life. They're giving me the truth that I need to recognize that, like, it has been mine this whole time. And I've just never been given a chance to, like, embrace it, pretend to it, you know? So, like, when I wrote that poem, I wasn't yet at this point you know? And so, like, it's really interesting to reflect on it and recognize that, like, in real time. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to switch to um, asking a question about um, a couple of different poems. So, um, and Sometimes when I read things, I make, you know, connections because I love just doing that and the connection may not be there, but I just love to see what my mind comes up with. And I think that that's, you know, like if your poetry can do that and it can pull something out of me that may not even, you know, you may not even, you know, intended, I think that's beautiful. But um, there's two um, poems, um, Birth of a Poet and Big Mouth, and both of them deal with poetry so you becoming a poet or being born into your poetry and then um you know big mouth which is like you know so sweet and simple and just two lines um I'd love for you to talk a little a little bit about your birth as a poet like when you actually when did you own that you are a poet um when did that happen to you and then the second part of it which if you forget I'll remind you because sometimes Thank with two-part questions <laughs> um is um talk about the light that is in owning that everything you say is poetry um I'd love to hear a little bit about that that experience because those are such powerful words you know um and to be at a place where you believe that and you write that, um, I would love to hear a little bit about that. Hmm. Okay, so Birth of a Poet 
I really feel like 16-year-old me was when I knew. And I might start crying because holy shit. Anytime I talk about 16-year-old me, I'm going to like, blah, you know. <laughs> and also, like, today's the 23rd. My mother's, the anniversary of her passing is on Saturday. So I'm already, like, blah, overwhelmed with emotions. But it's a good yeah. thing. You know? It's, like, something that I've been processing for a long time. And, you know, this this collection is very much, you know, in honor of her. Um. And, I mean, she is the person who gave birth to the poet, after all, right? <laughs> so, um, but it was when I was 16, and it's so funny because, like, it was my high school in-girls teacher. He, <laughs> he was the only person, one of, like, maybe two or three people that I trusted with my poetry at the time. Um, and he was one of the only people, one of two or three people who encouraged my poetry at the time. And he saw something in me. I don't know what, you know. Um, and one day he jokingly called me the uh, poet laureate of teena- teenage angst. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and like, if you've read some of my sad, sad girl poetry, then you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know. And so at 16, I'm like, okay, what's a poet laureate, you know? (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, And so, like, he actually was, when I asked him, I was like, what's a poet laureate, right? Because I'm like, this fucking kid from South Central, what the fuck do I know? Like, I'm, you know, I don't, whatever. Anyway, and so he's like, oh, da-da-da-da, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the first Black um, poet laureate of um, of the United States I was like tell me more <laughs> and so um you know Paul Lawrence Dunbar's We Wear the Mask was like the poem that did it for me like that's when I was like this is me like I was born in another life as Paul Lawrence Dunbar like this is I wrote this poem you know and I do wear the mask and I wear it every fucking day and like at that time in my life, I had no idea the depths of, like, truth that that poem would hold in my life, you know, Um, and, like, fast forward to, and to, like, you know, learning that I'm neurodivergent and understanding what masking means in that context, you know. Um, Anyway, so at 16, you know, that's when I started, like, feeling it and wanting it to be true but life was like nope (laughs) you know and I'm like okay well you know that's that's it is what it is like I'll just keep journaling and I'll just keep you know writing to myself and that's fine you know and so like I journal like not every day but (laughs) I journal pretty regularly frequently you know um and that was really like the only kind of writing that I was able to hold on to and make space for in my life um, from the time that I was 16 up until now, honestly, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it's, it sucks that like at that time, no matter how much I wanted to do open mics and like all of that jazz, cause I mean, I lived in South Central, like 
there's so much opportunity, you know, like real talk. And like, I even work, I used to work at this vegetarian Mexican restaurant near MacArthur Park. I don't know if you know about LA areas, but I'm just gonna, anyway. <laughs> anyway, but like, we used to do open mics and I'm like, I know that's gonna be me one day, you know? But like, not when I was 16, not when I was 17, not when I was 18, like, there's just no space. Um, so like, yeah, so, <laughs> I'm sorry, is that, is that good? Okay. That's perfect. <laughs> Can I ask you a quick follow-up question? And if you don't want to give it to me, that's fine. Um, what, what yeah. age are you now? So that I, oh my God, I am 36. Okay. I just, let me tell you the amount. Okay. So like, yo, yo, that picture, one of the pictures I sent you of me like holding the book at the book festival yeah so let me tell you something about that really quick this is a total side note I have ADHD yeah. we're just doing this okay um but that was the LA Times Festival of Books and it was being held at USC um which is like a stone's throw from where I grew up right and so I literally after 20 years got to go back home and tell people the story of my life like my story my survival story like y'all and like literally being able to tell them like, yeah, I grew up right over there, like right over there, you know? And like trip out on this, my uh, high school music teacher came through. And so like, he got to buy my book and shit. And like, and we're cool, we're cool. Cause we're like all adults now, right? And so like, he actually took me to my old house and it's not there anymore, unfortunately. And I knew it wasn't gonna be there cause they tore it down after my sister sold it. And they turned it into one of those god-awful fucking condo things. It's so ugly. And, like, it was so, like, gut-wrenching and, like, bittersweet to see it, you know? And, like, I grew across the street is, like, the apartment complex I grew up at. So, like, I went over there. And, like, it looks so different from what I remember. Like, it was, like, our apartment was the first one to like face the street. And so there was like this huge window with little like little perch and like a lemon tr lime tree growing that we planted. And like the lime tree was there, but it was kind of sad looking. And then the window was all boarded up and you know, like the cracks on this driveway were like a lot deeper and wider than I remembered. And like, it was so wild to just like walk through there. And I was telling my, my homie, my music teachers like, yeah so like when you're reading this poem like this is the alley where it happened like there's that one poem playtime mm -hmm. um, like this is the alley where it happened or like you know that window right there that's the first time I contemplated taking my life at eight years old you know <laughs> like all of those little things and you know it was wild because the uh the old super was there and he recognized me and he's like oh my god like <laughs> I haven't seen you since you were like this little like pointing to his knees and shit you know and like there's a another person there that recognized me and they're like oh, you're so big you look just like your mom and that, like all of that you know and it was just so like beautiful and bittersweet to like literally come full circle you know because like 36 for me like 
if and I say this all the time like if at 16 you had asked me if I would make it this far I'd be like hell no <laughs> you lucky if I make it past 23 what are you talking about like let's see if I make it past 16 first <laughs> like uh, you know so yeah that was a long answer to not even the same question <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so then second part, um, can you talk about the light in owning that everything you say is poetry? Oh, man. I think part of it is that I just have so much to say. And I've had so much time to reflect and to even extract the words and the emotions that have been suppressed inside of me all of this time. And so like, I'll literally sometimes have conversations with people and they will tell me like, did you just come up with that? That sounds, that's like a poem. And I'm like, oh, thanks, you know? <laughs> you know, or like those moments where like I, I say something and I'm like, literally, it literally sounds like I am speaking poetry and I think part of it is just like that neurodivergent magic that I'm allowing my brain to just speak as freely and as authentically as it wants to speak, you know, and that in and of, it, in and of itself is poetry, right? To just live authentically and speak freely. And so I, I, will, I embody that and I want to embody that all the time. And, you know, if I can do it, just if I can, like, fuck yeah, like, I'm just gonna do it. Like, why not? <laughs> I love that, I love that. Um, okay, so I have a question about one more poem because um, I could spend forever asking questions about poems, but, <laughs> um, and then I have a couple of just um, other uh, follow-up questions. So, um, fuck <clears throat> with work. Um, I love, <laughs> one, I love the title um, and I love, um, the poem, but I want to talk about um, the connection to the earth in the poem. Um, you know, there's the first line we eat with our hands, but as, um, you know, indigenous people from different places, we also like till with our hands and plant with our hands and then, you know, grind things with our hands and then, you know, cook with our hands and that you know so can you talk a little bit about that in the poem and, and then about that connection to who you are yeah definitely I feel like eating with our hands especially is such a it's just I, I feel like everybody does that right? Everybody eats with their hands at some point. There's something that you are going to eat with your hands, whether it's a chip or whatever, look at say, um, and it's easy for us to forget, like, it's easy for us to forget that connection to the land, to the food that nourishes us, and so I feel like slowing down time, which is one of the things, I guess, one of the ways I was trying to express that in the poem is, like, really just breaking down this idea of breaking bread and sharing a meal with each other and really just like allowing one to resonate with the actual food that you are eating. Um, food to me is really sacred. It's, it's something that has always connected me to those around me. Like I, I always felt that like 
my role in life is to heal people through love and food. So, you know, whatever that looks like, words, love, food, poetry, I'm down. Um, anyway, I'm digressing so much. I'm sorry. <laughs> do, do not apologize. Okay, okay, okay. Um, eating with our hands. And it's also something that speaking as a, not just a salvadoreña or centroamericana, or a, as a Latina, I guess, on that level, culturally, you know, we we are also taught and encouraged to exist as far away from our cultures as we can. You know, like this whole idea of Latinidad as a whole, right, is like becoming homogenized and one kind of Latin, like, no, we're not a monolith, y'all, you know? And like, and so with that comes like all of these beautiful, you know, cultural, relics that are still inside of us that still thrive but like we simply don't know how to tap into and so if we're able to as very simply as like when eating my tortilla I know this is sounds this sounds wild right but just like something as simple as eating a tortilla and just like recalling like this is sacred like you know talk about like people talk about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ right but like the tortilla is it is the body of our ancestors. It comes from the land that we have all grown from. Like if we are all, you know, hijos de maíz, you know, like this is us, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, fuck the fork. <laughs> um, especially when you're eating pupusas, which is made with maíz, <laughs> like fuck the fork. <laughs> I, ju I, I just had them yesterday for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if you used a fork <laughs> I am not <laughs> yes. a real one then <laughs> um, yeah. um, okay so we're gonna switch um, and question um, two part again um, you've given me one of your favorite poems um, so what is one of your favorite poems from this collection? I know that's sometimes hard. And then what's another of your favorite poems either that you're reading right now or that has been like forever? Um, I just like to know that. It's, I just find that interesting and sometimes readers find that interesting too, so. Mm. So from the collection, I would have to say We Who Did Not Forget, or A Constitution for the Unforgotten. I forgot I changed the title on that one. Okay. <laughs> um, and part of it is because of how that poem came to be, and part of it is because of what the poem came to be, you know, <laughs> like the poem itself. And, you know, I, I, I think I name it in the, in the book, or I speak to it a little bit, perhaps. Um, but uh, there is a group called BIPOC Writing Party that I learned about on Instagram. And every Monday they do a BIPOC Writing Party. So from five to like seven or eight, I believe. And so it's usually, you know, they'll have two different prompts and they'll break up the writing time. And then there's a chance for everybody to like share their work if they would like to. And so the prompt for this poem came from you know one of those sessions and 
I've worked on it for so long. Like it was one of those poems that I just kept coming back to and changing and it, it just needed, it, it, there's just so much in there that I felt like it needed to be tended to very, it needed to be nurtured is what it was. And, you know, the final poem, the final outcome of what you read in the book is, yeah, I, I think of it almost as like a proclamation, you know, and I think of it as like, almost a mantra as well, like something that I can speak softly to myself or just read out loud to myself or in my mind, whatever, and just remind myself, you know, like all of that. <laughs> all I, of love, that. <laughs> I love how you say that it needs to be nurtured because I think of, of poems as like babies, you know, like yeah. they come out and sometimes they come out and they're just like perfect, but that's very rare. And a lot of times it's like, there's poems like like you said like it needs to be tended to <laughs> and you're just mm -hmm. you're ten, tending it to it to the, the whole time so I love hearing that um a poem that you love right now or a poem that is in your head or that's sticking with you or has stuck with you mm. man it's so hard when like you ask me right up front because I can't think of any <laughs> you would if I can send this to you in an email and you can send it back to me as well. Um, no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am the worst right now. Hang on. I'm gonna. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't think. I know the Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem is always my first one to go to because like, yeah. that's my poem. Like, ah, you know. Well, I know um, I will be using that in the story, so we 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 yeah. probably don't need another one. But if I, <laughs> okay. if I if I if I get to writing and I want another one, I'll, I'll send you an email. And okay, I'll probably like email you randomly, like, oh yeah. <laughs> Any Any time, I always love like new poems or different poems <laughs> or you know, like okay. I was like, right. that's my that's my jam is just getting like if people just send me poems, then. Oh, which makes me. Um... I got it. Hang on. I got okay. it. I figured it okay. out. Audrey Lord's a litany for survival. Oh my God. I can't believe I almost forgot. Oh my God. Love it. Yo. See? <laughs> it just you. needed it, it just needed a second. Yes. Um, oh, which then begs me to ask. Um, one question that I want to know is so for people or for readers of your book who don't connect to poetry, because poetry is like, you know, it's its own thing. And there's so many people who like lack a connection to poetry. Um, what would you just say to them in reading your book um, in, in, in like cracking it open? Like mm -hmm. if you're talking to a reader who really doesn't ever read poems, um, what would you say to them? I would say to them that there is something in this book for you. And it may not be a poem. It could be just a line. Maybe it's a title, you know? But there, I feel that there's something in this book for almost everybody. I, I will say almost because I know that there are some, for some people who will not resonate with this book or who will not find this book to, you know, for them. And, probably white supremacist, but, you know, 
I don't want those people reading my book anyway. Um, but I think that there's a level of history that's in there that isn't often discussed. There is a level of cultural relevancy that is often overlooked. There are perspectives that are unique to, you know, this particular intersectional body that I, you know, inhabit that speaks to the greater connection that, you know, brings us all together, you know, which is our level of humanity. And in this very human experience, you know, I have been able to put, you know, words to emotions and experiences that I don't think others can. <laughs> and so, you know, I invite people who are wary of poetry or just not into it to just give it a chance anyway. And if it's not for you, then pass it along to somebody who you think would benefit from it. So I, you killed that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Sorry. No, that's great. No, that's great. <laughs> um, Okay, um, so last question, and this is a question I ask everyone. If you don't have an answer to it, that's okay. If you think of an answer later, you can email it to me. So I always just like to give people an open-ended. If there's anything you want readers to know about you, about the book, about your poetry, what would it be? I think the central theme and like the biggest takeaway is this is how I'm framing it, um, is that you're not alone. And like I said, there's so many topics and experiences that I've revealed in this collection that I truly feel will resonate with readers at you know, various capacities and dynamics of which readers can exist, you know, and I, I really hope that when readers reach for this book, that they find what they need, you know, and, and I do truly believe that there is something in there for just about everyone. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. This has been fun. <laughs>